The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get to uh, these banks. That is clearly a big issue. Uh, we've got a nice little roundtable here because if I'm the Federal Reserve, i got to deal with the banks. So let's talk to Allison Williams from Bloomberg Intelligence. Plus, I got to you know talk interest rates. So now I got to talk to Ira Jersey. He's actually in the Bloomberg studio, which is a rarity, John Tucker. I mean, and and pretty. I'm shocked. But, so we'll we'll take it. Um, he's all got and a suit wearing on. a blazer. Did he's you got, see this? He's all he's looking sharp. Clearly sir. works well. On all right, right so we got Allison Williams covers the banks uh, joining us phone. Uh, Ira Jersey um, uh, in studio. Allison, you know, we framed this discussion today with Fed Chairman Jay Powell that he has to address not only interest rates, uh, which is why we have Ira here, but he's also got to talk about the banking sector and, and the Fed's role in, in monitoring and regulating it. What do, you, what do you think he should say about the banks and the role of the Fed? Well, I think it is, I think it is tricky, and I think that, you know, a lot of the questions uh, – Percolating and, and that have kind of led to this um, do relate to market sentiment, and so you are seeing regulators sort of more pulling back and just pointing to you know the strong capital of the banks and sort of that as the broad picture. Um, general, uh, I think that, uh, and I'll let I'll let Iris speak to what the Fed does today, but um, you know, in in general, I think for what the banks are really waiting for is an answer on deposit insurance. Uh, and what can be done there. We're hearing a lot of politicians throwing around a lot of different ideas, but I think we do need something sort of um, broad, perhaps temporary, to help stabilize sentiment, which is really the issue at this point. Well, Ira, come on in here and talk to us about that stabilizing sentiment piece Allison just referenced. 25 basis points priced into the market. What does a pause look like in the bond market? Well, if the, I think if the Fed were to pause, or as I suspect that they'll do, they'll hike 25 basis points and hint that, that they may pause at the May meeting, is, um, is I, I think as long as they're dovish enough, I think for, that for risk assets, probably things are okay. But I, I agree with Allison. You know, the, the issue here is things like how do you quell deposit flight, right? And, and raising interest rates actually doesn't hurt that one way or the other, except insofar as the way the financial system has been developed over the last couple of decades is that if banks don't offer a competitive interest rate on their deposits, on their CDs or whatever, people then do what happened over the last week and a half and they move their money into money market mutual funds, which have market-based yields. And now, so the, so the Fed actually hiking could actually you know, enhance some of this deposit flight unless banks figure out a way to, to keep depositors in, in their um, in their firms. So, so, so I think it's a balancing act that the Fed has to do today. And, and I think that Jay Powell has to be dovish and that the statement will probably take out um, uh, a line that talks about um, the continued rate hikes. Like they, they won't promise basically that they're going to continue hiking. 
they could, right? But but they, I think they have to take that out and give themselves more optionality. Allison, you know, the reality is, for me at least, it seems like in the past couple of weekends, I haven't come into work on Monday like we did back in 2008 with another bank or handful of banks failing. The argument can certainly be made that this is kind of look, you know, it is syncretic to a couple of institutions here, and that if others broadly had problems, we'd hear about it by now. How are you thinking about it day to day as we kind of figure out that this may or may not be systemic? So I think, um, I mean, I, I think it's not systemic in in the sense that uh, you know it's more it's more a it's more sort of uh, having things in common versus. Um, you know, one bank's downfall causing another bank's downfall. So Credit Suisse, for example, the issues there could have been systemic because there are a lot of interrelationships, even though we we expect that, that the U.S. banks manage those down significantly over time. Um, certainly there are interrelationships, especially to the other banks. With the U.S. banks, you know, the, the issue is just that, um, you know, the, the, the setup, could cause an issue if we continue to have this negative sentiment. And that's why I think you need more of a broad statement, right? Because you, you had, uh, you know, we've had a few banks now um, that, have been, that have failed. Everyone's watching a, a couple of more banks. But once those banks find their answers, you know, investors will continue, I think, to go on to the next and the next until there is some kind of stability some kind of broad answer um, that that quells those fears. Well, Allison, I want to get your quick read on the PacWest story this morning. Uh, They accessed that Fed uh, facility for about $16 billion. They got about $1.4 billion financing from Atlas as well. A lot of people were worried that PacWest was the next shoe to drop. Are we in the clear now from that? I mean, you know, the the thing that I think investors will focus on is that is the deposit flight. And so, um, again, I think we have a situation where one particular bank is coming out and, and talking about, you know, that they've stabilized things, but people are focusing on the deposits, the pace of those deposits, um, and, again, worried about what's happening at other banks. And there's not a lot of transparency. Um, so I think that, I, th- I think, again, you, you need something that, that can kind of broadly stabilized that we're not going to continue to go, you know, bank by bank um, right. by story. Right. Ira, what's the key thing that – I'm not a Fed watcher, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but what's the one thing a non-Fed watcher should be listening for today at, at 2.30? Yeah, I, I think – well, at, so at 2.30, I think it's the um, – you know, how the, – the tone of Jay Powell's comments around the banking crisis, right? So how concerned is the Fed – that it could become systemic because like Allison mentioned, you know, Credit Suisse was potentially a systemic institution, right? The problem with 2007, 2008 was that you had large financial institutions that were very interconnected. So far, at least we haven't had, you know, a lot of a big bank outside of Credit Suisse that that was very interconnected to the rest of the system that can make the whole system collapse. Um, But of course you get enough smaller institutions that do that and suddenly it becomes systemic. So, so I think it's how concerned is he? And the more concerned he sounds, the more dovish that should be. And, and you should note then that maybe the Fed is going to be done after uh, after today's hike. All right. Great stuff. Uh, we really appreciate getting 
two of the smartest minds we've got in the building together at one time. Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence, getting them together. And you know why we did that is because the Fed is thinking they've got two mandates today. That's to deal with the banking issues and then obviously deal with uh, the interest rates and inflation. Uh, and that's how we want to approach it right here. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Consensus seems to be the Fed will raise 25 basis points. My question is, if it weren't for the banking uh, challenges out there in the marketplace, the turmoil in uh, some of these regional banks, would that change the Fed's behavior? Let's check in with one of our favorite Fed watchers, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence. She's also a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank at Dallas, so she knows how uh, they make the sauces down there at the Fed. So, Danielle, do you think if it were not for uh, the banking turmoil that the Fed would maybe go 50 basis points here? Uh, No, I think that that the CPI report, I think that the inflation data had been a little bit hotter than what was expected. But on the flip side of that, I think that there's more evidence now. We've got, what, 84% of the U.S. population is living in, a, in states with rising uh, initial jobless claims. Uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's a pretty, that, that's, it's, it's a huge chunk of America. There's more uh, uh, recognition among average working men and women uh, that the labor cycle has turned. So I think that that in conjunction with inflation not being, you know, super red hot, uh, would have kept the Fed at 25 basis points. I actually think they're going as much as they want it to go today. Danielle, again, we got to talk about this kind of minority view in the markets, which is there may, at the end of the day, be a pause. Would a pause, although perhaps creating panic, be justified from an economic point of view? From an economic point of view, uh, I think that a pause would be justified. I just said that, you know, Eighty-four percent of Americans live in states with with rising jobless claims, um, but I, I think that at this point it would it would upset the markets. You've got a ninety percent probability going in of this twenty-five basis points, and I think that I, I, it wouldn't surprise me to have Powell echo to a certain extent Christine Lagarde last week and say, you know, forward guidance is bye bye. We're we're just going to try and take this on a day by day basis. Obviously, if systemic risk comes unglued, uh, you know, he will he will pause. But I think Powell's trying to fight a war on two fronts. I think he's trying to maintain tight monetary policy. I don't think it it necessarily keeps him up at night that the credit cycles um, underway, that bankruptcies are happening, that that the, the, the riskiest operators with the worst business models are are, are having to restructure. I think he's okay with that. I think he's okay with that being an outgrowth of his policy. The flip side of that is credit standards are tightening real quick here. Yep. So that's that that could be something that 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 should be staying his hand today cuz try and get try and get a cash out refinancing, try and get a car loan, try and get a commercial real estate loan. Good luck. So, Danielle, I just typed into my terminal, D-O-T-S, dots go. Um, this is a Fed meeting where we do get the dot thing, right? Is that still a thing I need to pay attention to? I think that, I think that, the, that the dots right now are more like you know, playing darts. 
in the sense that given the magnitude, I mean, we just watched one of the world's 30 largest banks go bye-bye. Given the magnitude of the backdrop, I think the dots mean less. What I, what I think people will be paying attention to, though, is when Fed uh, leaders anticipate the first rate cut, if they all stand their ground, remember, Lael Brainerd's gone. She's not there in the room these last uh, two days. If they all stand their ground that we're not going to be, that the Fed is not going to be lowering interest rates until 2024, I, I think that that will definitely raise an eyebrow or two. Danielle, you talked about the dots a little bit, but let's talk then about when it comes to kind of economic forecasts, the GDP picture as well. I had an interview last week uh, with the CEO of DHL, and he okay, said, look, yep. the economy is still expanding. They're still hiring. They're still uh, seeing volumes go grow on a quarter by quarter basis. From a kind of GDP growth point of view, Danielle, the economy is still growing. Why is that such a bad thing? It's not a bad thing that the economy is still growing. The economy is about to have a, a full-blown heart attack and stop growing. Um, but it's not a bad thing that, the, that we still had economic output going into where we are today. But whether you're talking to people in logistics or trucking or industrial packaging, uh, they have seen, uh, unlike the gentleman from DHL, they've seen a sudden stop. In, um, in, in the economy. The New York Fed put out, you guys had it on the terminal yesterday, the New York Fed put out a new survey. People are getting rejected for credit uh, left and right, whether it's uh, trying to do a cash out refinancing or, or, get, or get a car loan. Um, so prior to even the banking crisis setting in, there were definitely signs in the economy of slowing or if nothing else, slowing to come. What is your call here on the labor market? Because that's been one of the issues, uh, Danielle, that a lot of folks are p pushing back on a recession scenario, saying you can't have a recession with this this level of unemployment. What's your view there? Uh, look, I, I think that I think that the labor market is is pushing out unequivocal uh, evidence of of how bad things are getting. A, a Walmart closes about once a week. They're clearly past their it's just usual business type of model. We have 400 footlockers announced that they were closing just a few days ago. So retail Mageddon is picking up stream up, up steam. And we're, you know, we, we've just seen amazon.com go through with its, with its third round right. of layoffs, one, two, three. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's good to say, look, look at the unemployment rate. It's still so low or look at unemployment claims. They're still so on a level basis. That's the case. But 67% of states have rising claims. Again, 84% of the population lives in a state with rising claims on a year-over-year -year basis. So that's, that's tangible. So you're talking about the labor market here. Should we be worried about the housing market? I still don't feel like a lot of people are raising the alarm bells when it comes to housing. You know, housing's a funny thing, right? Because we had this dip in mortgage rates. Everybody rushed in in these months that are typically seasonally very weak, December, January, February. Um, and yet, if you don't have an income, it's really hard to get a mortgage. And that is why I think it was critical to pay attention to the, the Federal Reserve's most recent senior loan officer survey that said even for residential mortgages that lending standards were tightening. And you see that in the fact that the 10-year Treasury yield has come down but the 30-year fixed mortgage rate has gone up in the last 10 days. That's telling you something about lenders' willingness to, to extend credit into a housing market when they foresee trouble down the pipe, which is that's what you get when you have a labor cycle, right? You, 
it's it's going to bleed into interest rate sensitive sectors and sectors where you have to have an income to get the financing to buy it. Danielle, again, the uh, release of the statement at 2 p.m. Uh, Wall Street time and then the uh, press conference at 2.30. Is there is there a mistake that Chairman Powell could make today that's in the back of your mind that you're saying, boy, I hope he doesn't do this because that could be really bad for the markets? I think he needs to be unscripted today. I think he needs to not be so nervous at the podium that he's reading his answers. He has to come out and exude confidence at a time of a lot of people being really freaked out. He has to stand up and be a leader. And I think that that could be challenging for him because this is probably the, the hardest podium time he'll ever have in his entire life. But the last few meetings, he's been very perfunctory reading his answers. I think he needs to be ready for what's going to be asked of him and be confident in his reply and say, we've got macroprudential solutions that we can attach to this financial banking type of crisis. It's burgeoning. We think we can handle this. At the same time, we think we can also run monetary policy on a separate track. We can we can wage a, a war on, 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 on we can wage war, on, you know, on, on two fronts. Danielle, lastly, just about 30 seconds, based upon what we know today, is the banking turmoil systemic or not? Do we know? I don't think we know if the banking turmoil is systemic. I suspect that it is, it is potentially systemic because quietly First Republic, like Silicon Valley, has not been able to raise capital. So when we cross these Rubicons, uh, there's definitely something wrong with the system when banks cannot raise capital. All right. We'll have to see. Uh, busy, busy day today. Uh, we appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. We know you're busy, Danielle. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence. Uh, some great stuff there. Follow uh, her work. She's got a great Twitter game as well. I follow her on Twitter. Lots of uh, good discussion there uh, with Danielle and some of her uh, colleagues. Uh, she was a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. So, again, we love talking to her about the Fed because she knows kind of how inner workings go. Yeah. And when you have a Fed meeting like today, it's good to, to check in with those folks. Yeah, it's nice to hear kind of how they go about thinking about this because I got to say, Paul, you could not pay me to be an economist at the Federal Reserve <laughs> right now. This feels like quite literally being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, so we'll have to see what we hear from the Federal Reserve later today. And of course, we'll have full coverage of it. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One of our favorite topics uh, to discuss is ETF, exchange-traded funds. Um, So much so that we asked Katie Greifeld from Bloomberg News to join us here because she is the ETF boss here for Bloomberg News. She joins us here uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio because we have a, a great guest to, to check out. Uh, Joanna Gallegos, co-founder of Bond Blocks, joins us here in, in our studio. Joanna, could you just remind us again what you guys at Bond Blocks do? Well, 
we do farm blocks is fixed income ETFs. We're the only fixed income issuer that's 100% focused on, ET on fixed income. And so we build out precision fixed income tools for investors. And let's talk about the year that fixed income ETFs are having, because my terminal is just booting up. But if you look at the flows year to date into the ETF universe overall, fixed income and equity ETFs are like neck and neck. I think mm -hmm. fixed income might have surpassed uh, the flows into equities in the past day or so. Have to check. I can't remember the last time that happened when overall for the year more money was going into bonds. I yeah. mean, just speak to the appetite that we're seeing in the wrapper right now for fixed income. Yeah, it's very simple. It's because of what happened in 2022 and yields being back. So people say bonds are back and it makes sense. But the what people need to consider is that total return is more important than ever in your portfolio and so with yields having moved over 450 basis points in 2022 and you know will continue to rise is, is what expectations call bonds are really important um, tool for 2023 because it's probably the most um, simplest way to see return in your portfolio and where is that return though when you look across the curve obviously we're seeing just <laughs> yeah. biblical volatility in the front end but still i hear a lot of calls that basically you just want to sit in cash you want to sit in sort of the shorter end of the yield curve when you think about duration the curve in its totality yeah what's your thoughts so yes in in duration which is a measure of interest rate risks you are seeing a lot of flows in the short end because that there's less duration there's less interest rate risk in something like a six-month treasury or one-year treasury that's just intuitive cash management use you should be on the short end with zero risk. Easy, easy decision. But what we see and what we've done in fixed income is we've cut up parts of the credit and part of the risk spectrum of fixed income so you can see different opportunities amongst those areas. And so what's really compelling is that if you look at things in um, high yield or even across IG, you're not seeing spreads from that risk-free rate that are different or very much or very much away from their non-recession levels. So I think people have been waiting for like this massive bottom in fixed income before they come in. But with the yields increasing and doubling over the last year, you're seeing 14% in triple C's, which is sort of the um, highest credit rating, highest credit risk you could have in, in um, high yield, all the way down to something um, like 500 in something in a, in a double B or a B. Those are normal levels. And so it's kind of one of those confounding things we're seeing in economic data where you're seeing a lot of demand, you're seeing low job, um, low, low unemployment, but you're also not seeing a lot of distress in high yield. And so we think there's a lot of interesting areas of risk to think about in fixed income. So I, I think it's, yes, everyone is in on the short end, but we really don't think people are taking enough action and looking at the risk assets in fixed income which are pretty straightforward given those yields um, for, for 2023. Got to be pretty brave, though. I don't know, to yeah. go into high yield right now? I was going to say high, high risk, high reward. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like Isn't it. Isn't that the entire argument on those AT1 bonds? It's like, well, they're mm. super risky, but they could yield some juicy returns. Well, that's sort of what Bondbox is about. We're about making sure that people can see those individual opportunities across the risk spectrum. So yeah, you don't have to take the full risk of triple C's, but it's there for you to compare and break out of what you're seeing in broad-based thoughts about high yield like that. Yes, high yield is a exchange of risk and, 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 and return, but there are opportunities amongst them. We want people to see those in individual products. You know, with this banking turmoil, which is a term I'm most comfortable with as opposed to a crisis, what we are seeing is a lot of deposits come out of uh, a lot of banks. And 
the expectation is they're going to money market funds, they're going to maybe some bigger banks. Are you s- seeing that in your business in the fund flows? Yes. Okay, talk yes. to us about that. So the short, as, as Katie mentioned, the short end of the curve and products and ETFs are seeing a lot of flow. Okay. ETFs are interesting is that it allows an investor to not have to reinvest their their short term cash or their strategic cash. So, um, like a like a money market fund, you're going to be getting a yield that that, that that continues with you within the market. So. ETFs are an alternative to deposits, um, but they are not locked up. There's something you can redraw, withdraw on any day of the week, and the yield is going to grow or contract with, with the market. So it's a very simple, convenient way to get access to treasury yields or short-term risk. If I think about the past two weeks, one of the, I don't know, I don't know how to, I want to describe it, but one of the more interesting facts to me is that when you think about what happened at Silicon Valley Bank, at the mm. end of the day, it was just duration risk. They were holding long-dated treasuries, you know, government bonds. It's not like it was anything that's supposed to be risky, but it was duration risk in the end. What are your clients thinking about when it comes to longer-dated debt? Yeah. So if, if you want to take on duration, we actually wanted to, to solve this problem for investors. We wanted to put it on the label exactly how much interest rate risk you're taking in a treasury product. Um, and so we created products that are duration targeted. So what we see with clients are um, generally in fixed income portfolios, when you want to take on more risk, you're adding duration because of interest rate risk that's coming up. So what we see is obviously most of the flows are going into the shorter side on the interest rate side because there have been expectations all year that there'd be increasing interest rate hikes. But with sort of the back and forth we've seen in the last few weeks, there is a view that interest rates may be coming down as soon as the end of the year or even very early in 2024. And so we are seeing people taking longer duration, um, five, seven, even 10 and 20. I think having that precision to be able to see what your interest rate risk is, is critical right now. And we actually yeah. launched those products so that people could more precisely put duration into their portfolio, even even in the treasury space. Well, I like that you said more precisely because I, I want to talk specifically about not the bond market, but the vehicle through which you're investing in the bond market, essentially ETFs as a product themselves. Given this kind of uh, environment where liquidity in treasuries is a concern, perhaps not immediately, but it was a couple of months ago and might be again, are ETFs then considered more attractive as kind of a tool to get your hands on them? They democratize access to our financial markets. They always have. They have been really important vehicles to source. I call it the, the first port of liquidity. It's like the first call. It's where you can go to see where a market is trading. And in treasuries, it's no different. And so the way that those markets function, they're very easy to access for all investors. It's not something that's exclusive to someone that's an, in an institution or doesn't know, yeah. doesn't have a, you know, a, a way to access the bonds directly. Anybody with a brokerage account can trade an ETF. So they're a really important tool for liquidity for all investors. Joanna, just real quick here. Uh, what do you expect from the Fed today? Well, the consensus, as you guys have been talking about yep. the last few minutes, is that they are going to raise um, another quarter another quarter point. Um, I think what we really need to expect from the Fed is sort of what they say and how they're sort of responding to the stability and this, this line they're trying to balance between financial stability, the economic data that has come in in this quarter, which is sort of – um, our portfolio manager, Ilya Schwartzman, likes to say has been flashing red lights and green lights yep. to the bond market. You don't know which, which is going to happen on any given day. So what they say is going to be really important for us to understand next steps. But we need more trends. We need more data. And we'll have to see what um, the next right. step is. Great stuff. Joanna, thank you so much for coming into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Really appreciate that. Joanna Gallegos, co-founder of Bond Blocks. She co-founded Bond Blocks in 2021. 
You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You know what's doing well here? John just called it out. Bitcoin, it's up another 1.9% today. It's, you know, pushing 29,000 on Bitcoin. Where's Tom Keene with his BitDog right? reference when, when you need it? Getting closer to that 30,000 level. Also, Paul, if you look back in, in the sense function, over the past 10 days, it's up close to 34% amid yeah. this big sell. Obviously, yeah. we've seen banks rebound, but during this heightened uh, volatility over the past few weeks, Seeing Bitcoin, uh, one of the winners here. Exactly. So when I want to talk anything crypto, I want to talk with Mike McGlone, senior macro strategist uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, you know, Mike, w- what is going on with Bitcoin here? And, and does it relate at all to what we've been experiencing over the last couple of weeks with some of these regional banks? Born, hey, Paul, born of the, the last financial crisis. This financial crisis seems to be defining Bitcoin. It's quite impressive. I mean, I've been looking for an inflection point to Bitcoin to be trading more like gold and long bonds, and it's happening. So one good example is, just, you mentioned Bitcoin's up about 73% in the year, but part of this is what's been happening with that grayscale Bitcoin trust, the GBTC. It just hit the 100% mark on the year today, and that's the litigation that might allow ETFs on, on, on the iron line. But the macro is significant. People are seeing this as okay, well, this is no one's project, no one's liability, no one's risk. Banks aren't involved. And we're seeing it as a bit of a flight to quality, a flight to safety. It's is a digital reserve asset. And actually, some of this is coming from this, the uh, crypto dollars, the stable coins, which are being somewhat looked at as, okay, so they have full reserves. That's quite impressive. So, Mike, has Bitcoin reached its inflection point versus stocks yet? And if not, what are you watching to gauge when that could potentially happen? I think it's happening right now, Jess, and that's, in, you know, in, we're seeing it in real time. But the key thing to think about is I'm worried about what Gina Martin-Adams says. She's our equity strategist, and she's right. been spot on. And when she says that the Fed hiking is bad for equities and 5% T-bills is bad for equities, I respect that. So I fully expect after we get today and the Fed hikes into what's turning out to be a, a significant deflationary period, if you look at banking and housing and commodities, that we get that downturn in equities, Bitcoin will fall. But it is showing divergence strike. It's quite impressive. And it's doing it more than most of the other cryptos. It's, you know, it's that single thing like gold and like um, and T-bonds, where people are saying, okay, well, what's my risk here? There's no one to bail this out, which might be better. Um, and so I think we're at that now. Also, Bitcoin outperforming commodities as well, right? Yes, I've enjoyed writing about that for quite a while. When people were talking about commodities super cycle last year, um, Paul's, I hear Paul giggling because I just pointed out the key facts about Bitcoin is it's low and early days for adoption and has definable diminishing supply. Now, you look what's happened to crude oil since last year when people were calling for 150. We're learning that crude oil is the world's, not as the world's most significant commodity, but it's the world's most autocorrelated asset. It goes down because it goes up, and that's because it crushes that demand and brings on more supply. And to me, that's what's happening. People are realizing, well, this super cycle might be happening in Bitcoin. So so oil here, I'm um, looking at WTI crude oil at 70. We were below 70 today. Um, is this just, you know, the marketplace saying, I think we got a demand problem looking forward here? 
It's all the above thoughts. I, I love how people making the excuses. Those of us who really got, you know, I was initially wrong last year when I said crude oil is going back to 50. I think it's getting there. And the key thing is it always does that. It looks very similar to what it did in 1990. I was in the trading pits then, initially got off sides, but it went to 40, back to 20, and then it took about 14 years to get above that high. The difference is now the U.S. is a net energy exporter. This has never happened. And we're seeing what normally happens in crude oil. It's the world's most autocorrelated asset. When it goes up, it makes it go down. But here's the key thing. At this similar stage in 2008, when we had that pump and dump, the Fed was aggressively easing. Now they're still tightening. And one thing I need to point out is back in 2009 was the last time we had a, the worst, the, the most negative PPI producer price index ever, really driven by commodities. We are going towards that too. when we get to July. July 13th is when we're going to get June PPI. It's very likely going to be negative on a year-over-year basis because of plunging commodities in crude oil. And that's not profound. That's just the way the math is going at the moment. And Mike, something I'm curious about, because I've had sources talk about when they're specifically looking at equities, they don't want to see oil trading around $50 again. When it comes to crypto, if you're seeing that happening in the crude markets, what do you think that means potentially for Bitcoin, if that were to happen? Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. This has part of been my premise to be bullish gold, um, because I see what's happening in crude oil and commodities is what is crude oil is an enduring bear market that bounced last year and it's tilting back towards that bear market, which means deflation. And you look at things like gold and Bitcoin, they're enduring bull markets that have dipped and probably tipping back towards bull markets. And for that tilt, you need the deflation to come back, and it's clearly going there. So let's look at one example for crude oil. is the, the benchmark for heat, electricity, and fertilizer in this country is natural gas. It's down 80% from last year's high. It's returned to its cost of production around 2 And I fully expect the same thing in, in crude oil, which is around 40 or $50 a barrel. $40 or $50 a barrel is the cost of production and the world's largest producer of crude oil and liquid fuels, and that's the U.S. And by the way, for our listeners, uh, Mike made that call like when oil was at $125 a barrel. So if you listen to Mike, uh, you made some uh, some do-re-mi. Mike, you, you cover everything from crypto to pork bellies. Um, <laughs> what are you looking at now? What's What's getting your attention here? Well, obviously, to, to me, the macro is overwhelming, um, Paul, and I think that's what people are missing. The fact that the Fed and the ECB are still tightened versus all the forward-looking measures are just plunging. I mean, commodities aren't just falling. They're collapsing. The, the Bloomberg Commodity Index is down over 20% over a year-over-year basis, and it's been we've had the history since 1960. The Fed has never tightened in that environment, yet they still are. We see housing market peaking, and now we have a banking crisis, and they're still pointing out lagging inflation, and I pointed out what PPI in July is the year of years probably going to be negative. So to me, that's a 10 on a scale of everything, 1 to 10, and everything else is a 5 or lower. Just the fact that today we're talking about tightening, when a year from now, I fully expect when we're speaking, we're going to be talking about enduring deflation, partly sparked by the Fed, who just was a little bit too late on the inflation, and then way too aggressive fighting it, and now it's way past, I mean, the, the ship is turning, and they're still tightening. Wow. All right, folks, what you just heard is a analyst on the top of his or her game for a couple of reasons. One, he knows his stuff. He does the work. He does the math. Second, he provides his opinions and his analysis with conviction. I mean, what you just heard there was an analyst who's got conviction in his call. He had conviction, oil going 40 to 50 when it was at 125, and we get conviction Again, whether we're talking pork bellies or crypto. Uh, so we're fortunate to have Mike McGlone with us. He is ensconced down in Miami, holding down the Bloomberg Intelligence, a southern tier down there in Miami. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to get right to our next guest, Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Liz, there's a million ways we could go here, and we'll certainly get to the Fed, but I'd love to ask a, a veteran uh, strategists such as yourself. What do you make of the last two weeks with Silicon Valley banks, Signature Bank, and, and, and some of these other California banks? What's your take? So my take is maybe broader than what's been the focus in the past couple of weeks. Uh, yes, there is um, a, a crisis going on here in the banking system, but I think it's part parcel of a broader story about the end of the you know, end of the era of easy money coming off the zero bound, the capital misallocation that occurred during that era of just ample liquidity and zero rates. And, and now I think we're sort of paying the piper. And uh, it, there's just been so much concentration on the banking part of this. But I think this is a broader story of, kind of you know, who's swimming naked when the liquidity tide goes out. Liz, I have to ask, how frustrating is it when the narratives keep changing in market pricing and also trying to position specifically around that? Well, yeah, it is frustrating. It's unique in terms of how rapidly it not just information is changing, but the reaction function. Um, but I'm not a trader and I don't I don't advise short term traders. So uh, we're not trying to kind of play every wiggle in here. The, the lead into the Fed meeting is extraordinary in terms of, of how dramatic the change in expectations have been from as recently as March 8th, an assumption of 50 by the Fed for hikes between now and year end, you know, five, seven on the terminal rate. And now we're sub five, still a bias toward 25, but even some thinking that maybe they pause. Yeah. So uh, if you're if you're trying to trade around this stuff, um, good luck. <laughs> but um, so Lizanne, certainly what, having an God. No, I was just going to ask, you know, we've got the, the Fed coming up later later today. And this is a unique uh, meeting for Fed Chairman Jay Powell because he, he does have this kind of simmering banking turmoil out there in addition to his remit uh, on inflation and everything. What would you like – what do you think he should do today? What do you think the message should be today? I, I think they should pause, but certainly the market is saying that they're not going to. It's you know 86% chance of, of 25. My guess, though, is that if they they hike, it'll be a dovish hike, or if they pause, it'll be a hawkish pause. Um, and that just means, I think, if they if they hike, it's consistent with market expectations. They tend to go along with market expectations, but they will talk a lot about what their facilities are, that we have the tools, that you know we're probably closer to the end. Conversely, if they opt to pause, which would be against market expectations, I, I think the messaging might be more about our inflation fight may not be done if if things settle down in the financial system. Hikes could be back on the table, so. That's my best guess heading into what is a very tricky meeting. And Liz, 
everybody obviously has been talking about the dot plots that are quarterly. We're going to get another update on those. And the median plot back at that December meeting was 5.1% for 2023. But are you expecting, I mean, how are you expecting markets to respond to that? Because obviously we won't just get them for this year. We'll get them for the next coming years as well. But what are you expecting to see there? And how do you think markets well, can respond? Uh, Frankly, markets shouldn't respond dramatically to the summary of economic projections of the dots plot. There's not been a lot of accuracy in those, but it does represent a bit of a signal. For me, the issue will be, is there a consistency in terms of the message within the summary of economic projections? What might be odd to see, and I think would be disconcerting, is if the, the, the dots and uh, suggest that rate cuts are very much on the table before year end, but it's not reflected in a deterioration in the economic projections, that I think would be a troubling message, which is, hey, we think we're going to be cutting rates, not because the economy is going to suffer, but you would infer that it meant we think the financial system problem is larger. If the economic growth expectations are weaker and inflation expectations are lower and the Fed suggest rate cuts might be on the table. I think that's a better, broader message. So I think it's sort of the combination of what the SEP and the dots uh, show. And I think that dissecting is going to be more important this time. What are you thinking in terms of any potential dissents when it comes to the Fed and whether or not that could raise questions as far as potentially what do they see that maybe we aren't seeing right now? Yeah, I, that's, I, you know, normally, particularly when it's, you know, it was unanimous and nobody pays much attention. And, and at times there might be a dissent or two and it doesn't tend to capture headlines. But clearly in this environment, if it's say more than one, a one-off dissent, I, I think that will garner attention. I would be surprised if, if Powell gets asked about that. But uh, to, to see that wouldn't surprise me. There's got to be uncertainty that, that leads to voting members having different perspectives on things. In fact, I'd be a bit more surprised if, if there was unanimity. Liz, how do you think uh, Fed Chairman Powell should respond to questions about the banking turmoil out there, whether it's how it impacted his uh, the, the Fed's decision over the past couple of days or how well or, or not well they, uh, the bank did in terms of uh, dealing with some of these banks or pre- pre- preventing some of these issues? How do you think he should respond? Well, um, I think he should stick with the the facts and the data and not speculate too much if it's on the basis of of just his perspective on what happens. So I I think he should talk about the take up at the discount window and uh, maybe a sense of what that's going to look like when it's released on Thursday this week. I think that's become sort of the hot piece of news now that comes out. We were all obsessed with inflation data points. Now I think it's that weekly Thursday release of, of how much borrowing is happening at the discount window. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure he's going to try to offer soothing words that the Fed has the tools and the resources, but um, I, I, I would assume he's not going to provide overt speculation without it backed up by the data we all are in possession of and maybe a bit more from what the Fed has. All right, Liz, so putting all this together, um, you know, the Fed, what we're dealing with in in the banking system, where we are with the economic growth, what is uh, your call to uh, Schwab investors these days about how they should be investing? Well, one of our – my lines that I've always used in tougher times is panic is not an investment strategy, and I think there are times that that applies. I think we're actually seeing some 
perhaps r- rational action in the market. You know, there's been a lot of concern. Why hasn't the equity market reflected this with more downside? But when you look at where leadership shifts have occurred, kind of up the cap spectrum, out the quality spectrum, the equity market may be sending a message that, all right, the Fed may stop tightening, but now banks are going to probably tighten. So small and regional banks take off, take up where the Fed left off, and that has different implications depending on whether you have higher interest costs, do you have the cash flow. So I think that there's a sort of a factor story that we're trying to emphasize. What, what types of characteristics do you want to look for in companies within the equity market for this very unique period of time, as to as opposed to making a you know all in all out um, broad equities call, I think this is where you have to add a lot of specificity in terms of what you're screening for, for lack of a better term. All right, Lizanne, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know this is a busy, busy day for you, uh, like it is for many uh, folks in the marketplace. Uh, Lizanne Saunders, she's the chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab, uh, just uh, I think one of the very highly respected voices in the marketplace. Uh, and certainly Schwab has you know so many accounts uh, out there, so many clients out there that she has a big impact on a big part of the market. So we appreciate uh, getting some of Liz's time there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's bring on our next guest. We were talking about we had some great guests this hour. How about yeah. this, this guy? Cam Harvey, professor of finance at the Duke University Fuqua School of Business. Uh, disclosure, he was my professor. Uh, I took a couple of his classes and... There's lots of math in his classes, and I think that he got his PhD from Chicago. That might have something to do with it, but I'm just not that mathy of a guy. So there was a challenge for me, uh, but I did make it through. Uh, Cam, there's a million things we can talk about here, the Fed, the, the yield curve, but I want to start off with Silicon Valley Bank and some of these other banks on the West Coast. It's not every day we get bank runs. What do you make of it? So um, I make of it, uh, there's a lot of blame to go around here um and and number one this is a gross failure of regulatory supervision so um this is obviously a regulated bank a state chartered bank but regulated uh, by the fed but it's uh less than 250 billion dollars so they're not held to the same regulatory standard um for example the stress test but even if they had to do the stress test they would have passed. So what, what's going on? Um, it turns out that the regulator uh, put together the stress test, not realizing what is going to happen to um, the Fed funds rate. So the extreme scenario that the Fed gives the bank to stress test is not extreme enough. And it's, it's the regulator, the Fed, that actually creates this scenario outside of their own extreme scenario. So that is a failure. Um, Now, it's not just a regulatory failure. This is a regional bank, and it's also a bank that caters to a particular industry. And that means that your loan book is not, and and your clients are, are not diversified, both geographically and across industry. So that means 
that you need to be held to a higher risk standard. And the other thing is that, uh, and it's kind of remarkable, and we can talk about this more, that um, these banks and Silicon Valley Bank in particular doesn't seem to understand one of the most basic risk concepts. And, and Paul, I think this was lecture three of Finance <laughs> 101, um, and that's duration risk. So just because you buy a long-dated treasury doesn't mean it doesn't have any risk. It doesn't have default risk, but it's got interest rate risk. So, so they didn't do uh, any hedging. So banks can hedge. And it turns out that uh, SVB in the past had hedged, but then they let the hedges expire. They were too expensive. <laughs> How systemic, if at all, do you think this is, Cam, or do you think this is more specific to SVB or maybe even just a handful of banks that, that, that catered to that uh, customer yeah. base? So the last time I was on, uh, we talked about the yield curve, and the yield curve is relevant for this particular situation. Because you think the usual banking model, you, you, you gather deposits and you're paying your depositors a short-term interest rate, the savings rate. And then you lend some money out um, to companies and things like that, or you buy long-dated um, treasuries. So, so what you're getting is, in terms of revenue, is a longer-term rate. And what you're paying is a shorter term rate. And that works great if the yield curve has got a positive slope, which, meaning the long-term rates are higher than short-term rates. But when the yield curve inverts, that puts stress on the banking system. Because all of a sudden, what they have to pay out in savings deposits is, is high. And it could also be the case that the value of the liabilities uh, changes. So... Um, so this is the reason to actually do some hedging, but not all banks do the hedging. And uh, because the yield curve inversion stresses the banks, it kind of makes sense that the Fed should take that into account. So I'm very interested in reading the minutes of the FOMC um, five years from now when they actually come out <laughs> to see if they actually did their homework and say, oh, well, we're thinking of inverting the yield curve even more. Uh, how many banks does that put at risk? And okay, so but the... <laughs> I was going to ask you because you're specifically bringing up the yield curve. When you're looking at that, is it telling us are, are we headed into a big event or did the big event already happen? So, so think of it this way. The yield curve's got information that's been very accurate uh, in terms of forecasting recessions. It is something that uh, precedes uh, economic bad times. And, and you can, the yield curve has been inverted for quite a while now, and you can see some of the damage that it's doing. So we went in, uh, like a year ago, our financial system uh, was very robust in very good shape, leverage less than uh, it was, for example, before the global uh, financial crisis. But once you start to engineer a yield curve inversion, it puts at risk the basic banking model. And for those banks that are not sufficiently hedged, 
that puts them at risk. So, and this is exactly what's happened. So the Fed in taking these actions has weakened the banking system. And again, this is not just a regulatory problem. It's also a problem of moral hazard because these banks, well, why should we hedge? Um, the Fed's going to bail us out. Yeah, that's kind of what it, it seems like at this point. But so now now you're the Federal Reserve. You're, you're Jay Powell today at, at 2 o'clock, Cam. What do you do here? Okay, so the last time I was on your show was just before uh, the previous announcement where I said that they should stand down yep. and pause and collect more data. Um, and they did not do that. And I considered that a mistake. And indeed, that could have been the tipping point, that hike to invert the old curve um, just a little bit more that uh, that that could have been the pivot point uh, to push us into a potential serious banking crisis. So uh, what I would like to do uh, today, uh, if I was at the Fed, would be to cut 25 basis points. I know that's not going to happen <laughs> because uh, it would be a sign of, of panic, uh, of desperate measures. But the right thing to do, and I, I agree with Lizanne, uh, who was on previously, is to stand down, to pause and say, we need to collect more data. And, and really what this means is we need to collect the data that we should have collected last time and the time before to do the analysis of the banks to figure out what their risk actually is um, and how it was induced with the yield curve uh, inversion. And, and, and is it the case um, that the, the equity in these banks, if we look at their assets and mark them to market, uh, has taken a hit, potentially a $2 trillion hit. There's an academic paper that suggests that there's hundreds of banks that could be underwater uh, right now. And the Fed needs to do that work. And that work includes not just looking at the balance sheet, but also looking at off balance sheet. So we need to know if for uh, these companies are hedging um, and how they're hedging. So they should be hedging their interest rate risk, but we don't know. Uh, that's very opaque right now. The Fed has got 400 PhD economists. They should <laughs> give this high priority. <laughs> All right, Cam. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Clear and concise, uh, as always. Uh, Cam Harvey, he's a professor of finance at the Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Uh, I survived his classes. No walk in the park. Uh, you had to bring your A game, uh, but uh, the better for it, I think. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. 
Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.